welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. In episode 36 of Why Make, we talk with furniture designer, sculptor, and teacher Ellie Richards, who is currently a resident artist at the Penland School of Crafts in the mountains of Western North Carolina. After growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and attending the wood and furniture design programs at San Diego State University and the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Ellie also traveled extensively to investigate the role play and improvisation have on the artistic process. Looking to the tradition of both woodworking and the ready-made, Ellie creates assemblage, installation, and objects exploring intersections of labor, leisure, community, and culture. We discuss her piece, Continuous Limit Line, in which Ellie creates a fabricated chain made out of found police traffic barriers. Ellie also tells us about her totems and a constant habit of deconstructing and reassembling brooms and brushes of all shapes and sizes. Navigating this world with honesty, creativity, and optimism, Ellie believes crafts can be a powerful vehicle for sharing culture. So let's take a break from work. It's time to play. Welcome to Why Make. We're here with Ellie Richards. Thank you for being here, Ellie. You were kind of um, leaning towards it, but why don't we just jump right into the why make question, mm. which is what is your first experience or memory of making something? Oh, yes. The, the big question. Um, you know, I love this question. It reminds me of another podcast um, that I listened to called On Being, and I wondered if that was on your radar at all. Um, no, it's not. I've, I listened to it before they changed their name. <laughs> Oh, oh, great. What was it before On Being? Been on NPR for a long time. Yeah, it's Krista Tippett. Krista Tippett, On Being, and I forgot what she used to call it. But I've I've listened to it for years. It's a wonderful show. And it's, overarchingly, it's about spirituality. Right, yeah. She starts every interview with her guests by asking, like, what was their spiritual upbringing? Mm -hmm. And when I thought about the corollary between that question and this question, because it is a, you know, it's like her sort of trademark of her mm-hmm. podcast. And um, yeah, it just got me thinking like, it's kind of the equivalent of what you would ask a craftsperson is what was your first experience making something? Because for a lot of us, it is a religious spiritual experience. Oh, yeah. It, it, it really is. It's, yeah. Uh, um, wow. What a, what a cool, what a cool corollary to, to recognize yeah yeah i love that i mean what is what's your you know maybe we should reframe the question so what is your spiritual beginnings as a maker <laughs> there you go <laughs> so i kind of uh let that float around in my mind a little bit and i started thinking back and i think the first thing that comes to my mind is you know i grew up just off of lake erie and um, pennsylvania and um grew up on a dead-end street a uh, small town pretty small small rural town was it actually outside of erie it was yeah yeah outside of erie pa uh gerard pennsylvania it was we had this street and it was we had a couple families with kids growing up so there was a lot of us out there after school and during the summers um and we all sort of 
formed friendships and <laughs> alliances <laughs> and, you know, just little clubs and things. And we would go out and build uh, forts and stuff. I think those are my first experiences making things is being outside and um called it war before you knew what war was it, yeah Everybody yeah stick guns and forts and all that stuff and it was like yeah the only thing that was on our mind was like can school just be over already so we can go outside and build forts and in a lot of ways we ended up creating these little micro economies like We'd have little neighborhoods and, you know, our bikes became our cars and, oh, absolutely. you know, plants became our money in a way. Like that was our, our form of bartering. So there was all of this like imaginary, this like backdrop of an imaginary sort of realm and we sort of existed in it. And within that, we got to create with our hands um, our own special environments that then sort of had another life in the imagination so and did you do what because actually rob and i are both from that area as well mm. i mean i grew up in pittsburgh rob lived in pittsburgh yeah. we both lived in morgantown and and the the beautiful thing about growing up is we built forts in you know the oh, three seasons the but in the winter you know sort oh. of like the 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 additive process and the subtractive process snow dragons and, and, oh and the in the winter we used to build these amazing tunnels through the big snow drifts because the snow plows would come along oh, and yeah. plow up these four five foot six fall six foot tall drifts oh, yeah. and then we used to dig tunnels in the drifts and it was like the the perfect expression of craft because one was about removing the material and the other was about adding building it up oh my gosh i love that about snow too um it's such a great sculptable material and so forgiving and it's like yeah working with clay but like quicker and and uh, more monumental have you ever seen any of jason schneider's snow sculptures that he's done i've seen him do a couple in competition oh right yeah it's just ridiculous yeah, it's yeah. the coolest snow sculptures i've ever seen i just wanted to throw that in no there. i i think it's great they got very inventive out there in aspen doing that as a contest each year i i remember using like a recycling bin like the blue sort of cube like recycling yeah. bins and we'd pack those with snow and build up using that as like a mold that was pretty cool and we're we're talking about so you so did you do a residency at anderson ranch i did well? yes yeah. yeah that's i met jason there um it was a great uh eight week experience uh people from all different disciplines working together living together for those eight weeks and i still have quite a few friendships from that time and and so jason schneider is a another woodworker and educator a little little i'm gonna steal your your term eric a little inside baseball there yeah actually jason was episode 16 and 17 was his bonus right 16 and, and 17 uh, yeah really really fun chat with with uh jason oh but, yeah okay so you're growing up and making these amazing forts and creating this community of of your 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 <laughs> friends around where you're growing up yeah yeah so we felt really lucky to be able to kind of roam free we made forts in the cornfields so those were like that was one iteration and then there was also a canal behind our house oh, and yeah. that ran behind the whole street and that became canal town and on, it was sort of this this bank that went down in this little small stream. So was it concrete? Was it actually a, 
No, like it was laid just concrete or just no. Dirt? There was train tracks and then like sort of a, a valley and okay. then the houses on the other side of that valley. Mm-hmm. So you know that was a hill. Those were hills for sledding. That was sort of the sort of um, designation of us going into this other sort of environmental space. When I lived in Pittsburgh, we called our backyard the Dirty Hill because it yeah. went down into that that gully. Yeah, if you didn't come back with muddy boots, then you know you really weren't weren't living. So. <laughs> you were doing something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and and where did things progress from there? I mean, did you did you do art or build things in high school, or did you go to did you study art in college, or? You know, I did. Yeah, a couple of those things sort of converged in my life. Um, I think that you know I had parents that were encouraging of creativity and expression in a lot of different ways. And we tried out a lot of things, you know, was that going to come in the form of playing an instrument? Was that going to come in the form of, you know, 2D work or 3D? And um, when it came to going to, when I was in high school, we had moved actually to Pittsburgh, uh, North North Hills. um, Mm -hmm. And in that school system, there was still an active uh, sort of shop tech uh, class. And so we rotated with between four courses throughout the year. And one was home ec, one was shop tech, I think we called it. Um, Another was like technology, like so typing and stuff. So throughout that rotation, it was, that was probably my first time getting into a space where I was given a few tools and asked to manipulate a craft like media and that was wood at first and then and then metal. Do you remember some of the first things that you made? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're sitting on my mom's table at Oh home. cool. You still have them. Yeah, she's got so I have two brothers, one older, one younger, mm-hmm. and we all went through that same program and the thing that we made, which is a brilliant assignment that I still think holds up, but a letter opener. Oh, cool. Um yes. So we used some like walnut and cherry and laminated a sort of thicker handle on one end and then filed the other to to be something slender and something able to sort of slice open an, mm-hmm. an envelope. No, I mean, I think that's I think it's interesting. Uh, I thought you were going to say something else, but uh, <laughs> a letter opener is it's, it's again, you know, because I, I think later we're going to talk about your brooms, but talk about, you know, sort of reimagining these common day objects mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. having another life and another function in a, in a sculptural world. And I think a letter opener is a perfect expression of that. Cause what's somebody going to look at a letter opener a hundred years from now and go, hmm. what was it? I mean, is that some sort of like prehistoric? Right. Right. But anyways, and... go ahead. I interrupted. Oh no. I mean, it's, it's a great object. I think it's still a good one as long as you steer whoever you're teaching how to do it into this frame of mind that it's not a knife. It's yes. not a ship. It's like, <laughs> this is something that is, you know, meant for, for, for more kind things than that. But um, yeah, it does take on that, that character as well. So, you know, we did that in that was middle school and I have pretty fond memories, mostly just sitting around the linseed oil table gossiping with my friends. You know, at that time, I wasn't like, I love woodworking, like, this is my calling, like, not at all. The only thing close to that was that 
I was mostly finishing my friends' projects, like because I enjoyed it. I do remember that. I'd be like, "Oh, I'll I'll take care of it," or because you love the smell of linseed oil, <laughs> it does bring me back. Yeah. No, there is something wonderful about that smell. No, I love that smell myself. That's what's wrong with you, Eric. <laughs> yes. No, it's what's wrong with all of us. We all like that smell, the wood and the oil. And Instead of instead of huffing glue, we were huffing linseed oil. <laughs> well, there are worse things you could do, I guess. I feel pretty lucky to have done like a shop tech class. I think that's kind of a lost thing. I regret not having done one in, in high school. Like I took art classes, but mm -hmm. I had an option to go to Votech in, mm. in Morgantown and you know, of course, we're just like, oh, yeah, that's where all the redneck kids go. And that was just, in hindsight, it's like, oh, my gosh, these guys learned how to work on cars and build cabinets. Mm -hmm. And it's like, mm -hmm. oh, woulda, shoulda, coulda. I, I really wish that my mind was a little bit more open at that point. And yeah. yeah, unfortunately, none of those options really existed in the Pittsburgh city schools. Mm -hmm. But I mean, here in Chapel Hill, there's actually a, a world renowned woodworking program at one of the high schools. And it's pretty amazing. I mean, uh, I think uh, Klingspore, you know, one of these big woodworking companies yeah. has completely outfitted the shop. And it's oh, uh, that's cool. the instructor does just some amazing things with his kids. And I think not getting off yeah. the path of your uh, your exploration, <laughs> but I, uh, I, I think being able to explore doing things with your hands at a young age is really important in everybody's formative life to know that not only can you think with your hands, but you have the ability to do something with your hands. Yeah, you get that taste of transforming something without any real stakes. You, you know, there's no real pressure. The materials hardly cost but, but a few dollars. And I think that that theme of being resourceful and using what's around you to build and transform your environment is something that has stuck with me through through the years. Yeah, and it's really empowering as well. Yeah, very I mean, much so. I'm just imagining Ellie, you in middle school, you're probably a much smaller person <laughs> sitting there over a table saw, like pushing stuff through. I'm sure you probably didn't work the table saw and stuff, but that's just a picture that I have. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be that'd be pretty sweet if I did. I, I um we did up on do, a stool or something. Up on a like stool. behind I know. <laughs> And I'm I'm not opposed to I love teaching uh, young children to use tools that may be perceived as dangerous. I mean I don't know if table I, I don't know the youngest person I've ever seen on a table saw is, but we're not promoting early use of table <laughs> right, saw. By the way, right. so thank don't... you, thank you. Disclaimer. But yeah, certainly I've looked a lot at the Sloyd tradition, which is like sort of an educational model out of Sweden, which brings handcraft to young children and with the use of a very sharp pocket knife. Mm -hmm. And I think that, yeah, more, more youth need to be exposed to these tools earlier on and to have the experience that they're in control and that this isn't, this is something that's empowering and not, and shouldn't be feared. Well, actually, that was one of the actually most memorable comments from the Sylvie Rosenthal episode when she emphatically stated, I like to teach young children how to use knives. Oh my god! I think that's almost a, I think that's almost a direct quote. There it is. There it is, folks. Yeah. And Sylvie Rosenthal, who's actually a really important person in the, in educating young woodworkers, is flat out states it, and you know that exactly what you said. Yeah, I'm on that bandwagon 100, percent and I will support Sylvie's and charge on that. 100. Boys and girls and everybody. I mean, when I was doing it, I learned in Boy Scouts. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think about it then, but I sure as heck hope that 
the girls and Girl Scouts were at least given the opportunity to do something like that. And I don't think they probably were back mm-hmm. when I was doing that in the in the 80s and yeah. early 90s. But what a great opportunity. I mean, we had, to, you know, hatchets, pocket knives, all that stuff. And, you know, like you said, that was empowering to be able to learn how to do that with your own hands. Yeah. And ver- I mean, you didn't even have to turn on a machine. You just had to make sure these things were sharp and you can make stuff. Oh, and there's some great Sylvie Instagrams recently of her showing young kids how to use hatchets, too. I love that as well. Oh, brilliant. There's, no- there's nothing better than a five or six year old running around with a hatchet. Yeah. And it doesn't take much, you know, like those kids, they'll probably remember, um, you know, the experience. Again, they might not be saying to themselves, this is my vocation. This is what I want to do in life, but it's going to leave an imprint no matter how, you know, short of a moment it was with a tool in hand and hacking away at a piece of wood that that leaves an imprint. Right. And actually, I think she was making spoons. But again, we're we're getting ahead of the story. So so after high school, where did where did making take you? After high school, I did go directly to to college. I went to a liberal arts college in Ohio, the University of Dayton. The school was not too big, not too small. It wasn't too far away from home. It wasn't too close. Yeah. I got a good feel uh, of the school when I went to visit the campus, and I got a good feeling, and it just felt right. At the time, I knew that I I was sort of split. I, I was undecided. I was thinking it could be art education. It also might be biology or, you know, I was interested in working with animals at the time. And so I was really, I knew at a liberal arts school, I could kind of play both of those hands and see which one took hold. And I think that ultimately is why I was like, felt good about going to this, this university. And then I took my first 3D design course and was kind of hooked and continued forward with the curriculum of a studio art major and an art education major. And was wood involved in that? Did, did they have a, <laughs> did they have a, well, I mean, wood was probably involved in, in, a, in your 3D design classes. To be honest, our 3D design class, we only used cardboard. Um, which is wild when I think back on it. And we manipulated cardboard. We were cutting it with exacto knives, using ruler precision, like making all of these models, exploring the elements and principles of design. And it really was a nice precursor to like processing like sheet goods and cutting joinery and stuff, I have to say. So yeah, 3D design, we did all the exercises. What happened was my 3D design instructor, his name was Gary Marcinowski, he went to school at the Program of Artistry in Boston? Yeah, at Boston University, yeah. I believe. Or Boston, yeah. I think it's Boston University. Yeah, so that was a really sort of important program for a lot of people. I know he was uh, in classes with Wendy Mariama, and I forget who else, um, some, some big furniture names, though. Yeah. And I, I don't know how the lineage works, to be honest. I, I forget who their instructor was, but... Probably somebody from RIT. It, yeah, yeah. And Gary... So Gary was a furniture designer, but teaching sculpture classes at this liberal arts college. And he sort of recognized that I was drawn to to building. And when the next project came up in our sculpture course, the, the assignment was to make a spirit table. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it was a great assignment. Great assignment. It, it kind of opens up the sort of conceptual possibilities of what is a table. You know, it doesn't have to have four legs. And so, you know, it, it really wasn't about 
all that much technique. It was just more f a formal exercise, formal and conceptual exercise. And keeping in mind, this was a, a BFA program. It wasn't yeah. anything to do with furniture design. But Gary had that in him, and he saw that I had that in me. And he shared knowledge with me accordingly and put a hand plane in my hand and taught me how to use the table saw and trusted me in, in the shop in that way. That's empowering I mean, to have somebody that recognizes that in you. Yeah, I, I, I really owe a lot to him. He spent like one-on-one -on -one time with me mm -hmm. in, in a college that's really critical to have find a mentor. And I got to learn what it meant, what that word meant and what that relationship could be. And through that, I feel my education, I, I value my education. Without Gary, maybe I don't care so much about a four-year degree, but I was able to cultivate this relationship and really get a lot out of it, a lot of meaning and memories. And then you went further in, in furniture design, or did you go off on a more sculptural path? Well, after finishing up my art education certificate and sort of the studio art uh, degree, I really didn't feel ready to go into the school systems and teach. Um, I was just catching the studio practice bug and wanted to learn more about what that would look like on a personal level. Um, you know, if I were to pursue a master of fine arts or, um, I just wanted more life experience before heading into the classrooms. And so I did, I applied for graduate school right out of undergrad and, um, looked around for programs, applied to a few. Um, I was looking at sculpture programs mostly, um, but I came across this one at Arizona State University, which had an MFA in wood. That's it. Like it was wood slash sculpture. Um, and, and yeah, this was out in the desert. This is out in Tempe, Arizona. And a really kind of small program uh, run by a guy named Tom Eckert, who carves amazing trompe l'oeil still lifes out yeah. of wood and paints them. Yes, they're, they're amazing pieces if you're not familiar with Tom Eckert's they work. They are incredible. And my decision to go out there, you know, had a lot to do with the conversations that we had leading up to that. I felt a kinship to Tom and I also felt drawn to the Southwest and it was something that I felt, I know I'm interested in working with wood and I will get to dive into that deeper, but I'll also get to explore you know, what my studio practice means in the context of, of being a sculptor and more interdisciplinary as well. I headed out there and I was there for close to five years, four or five years. The program was three, took me a little longer than three. And yeah, I was out there messing around, working with wood. And what kind of, what kind of stuff are you building? How would you characterize your work during that period? Um, I was doing a lot of work that was participatory. I, I, I was rejecting the notion that in a gallery, you weren't supposed to touch anything and things were supposed to sit on a pedestal. I, I was rejecting that as a, as a rule. And in my, in my work, through my work, I created settings where people were to, were to have hands-on experiences. And a lot of times that led to 
a, an experience of play or pretend. And I recreated a lot of block, like toy block set and just toys in general, which activated people's imagination to break down barriers of what was considered appropriate in a, in a gallery setting. And also wanted to touch adults sort of memories of what it means to engage in open-ended play. I think I felt that the work I was making was intended for them, not for kids. Even though when you looked at it, it may look like it was toys for kids. Right. Well, it sounds like the, the, whole, the whole notion of the work was to keep it open-ended. I mean, you had the visual idea was to give people the ability to create their own thing, give mm -hmm. them the elements to create their own, their own, their own make-believe. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, that's what playing with toys is about. It's, about. it's about sort of mimicking, in some ways, it's about mimicking an adult reality as a child, with yes. these with these other toys and that's yes. what's that's what's wonderful about toys and and to let kids play let adults play with toys it, it, it <laughs> there's just something really uh, i'm gonna say warm and fuzzy just because i can't think of anything else to say i love it yeah 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 i mean um one of my favorite toys as a child that i took out of my mom's house when we cleaned it out was my tonka toy cement mixer and it was, it was, I mean, Tonka toys are these like really well-built heavy metal toys. And the, you know, the, the drum on the cement mixer actually turns. And it was like, I actually made mud cement with that as a little kid. And it was a really vital part of me wanting to be a maker. And, and, you know, it, it that, that Tonka truck sits in my studio. Oh, you do still have it. Oh yeah. That Tonka truck is. I mean, you know, I move it around because uh, it gets in my way, but I mean, it's big ass. <laughs> now, anyways, but go ahead. I mean, you know, is it... well, I mean, where did, where did things progress from making toys or, or making, I, I don't, you know, I think toys is kind of a derogatory term in some way in that it diminishes what you were doing. You are actually making playthings, which I think like is a, a playscape almost. Yeah. Yeah, you're touching on something because it is less about the object of the toy and more about the experience that it provides. You also bring up an interesting sort of relationship that toys often have with their intention to recreate this ad like adult life. So a Tonka truck is just mimicking, you know, the way that cement is made out in the real world on roads. And so Yeah. So yeah, like you, you've got these like these things mimicking real life, and what that usually meant for me was like there that that was some form of work. So like some form of labor. It was like, mm -hmm. um, and so some of the block sets that I made, interestingly, were in in cement. I just cast all different playful block shapes in concrete, and I made a set that was cast in dirt. And I made a set that like mimicked construction insulation, mm -hmm. like the pink fluff, yeah. like sort of insulation. And, and the idea here being, you know, you're touching again for adults, you're touching on these tactile experiences that they have out in the real world, but you're bringing them back home with these, this really fundamental uh, foundation of block play and engaging your brain with, the relationship of one shape to another and engaging a relationship in how something feels and what that makes you feel inside um, tactily. 
speaking. And so, so it's like a sensory experience um, that I think is missing when you just witness a Tonka, like a, a truck out in the world mixing cement. You, you sort of like view that as, as something separate from you. Um, but I think what we're talking about here is bringing it back to the, a, a, a multi-sensory experience that um, is less about the object and more about all of these things, all of these synapses happening within your, your sense, your senses. Although the, I, I think there's something interesting to be said about the materials you choose to make these out of, though, because some materials are just purely ethereal, ethereal, eh. What's that word? Ethereal, yeah. <laughs> ethereal, yes. I mean, in the sense that they're, you know, like we were talking before about, you know, making sculptures out of ice. But I was thinking your exactly. choice of, of casting something out of concrete versus making it out of, you know, uh, or wood. There's something very permanent about concrete that makes a statement as, a, as an item to play with versus something that's less or, you know, a more precious material, a less, uh, you know, a less permanent, less permanent. Anyways, I, I might be going down the wrong path there, but I, I definitely got this vision in my head that there's something that feels different out of a, a set of play blocks made out of concrete versus ones made out of wood. I mean, there's the feeling when you play with them, they're heavy. That wasn't a conscious part of that process in terms of thinking about materials that way in terms of permanence or was more a sense of trying to mimic the reality in the real world in terms of building blocks? You know, I think it's a little bit of both of those things. I think in art making and, and even in furniture making, you have to have a pool. What's going to, what's that initial draw? You want to draw someone in and then create a landscape of open-endedness that they can mm-hmm. then traverse with their own, on their own time, on, in their own speed and in their own way. So with furniture, it's like you look, you look for the icon of, of a chair and, and people know that this, this is a chair. I'm supposed to sit in it. When the person comes to sit in it, oh, they're noticing, oh, the texture of it is, is such that it's reminding me of moss or so. So I think like with blocks, it's like just drawing people in because they know what they're something recognizable. I mean, they're they're transferring it with their own experience. I think that mm-hmm. yeah, when you sit when you look at something that looks like a chair and you sit in it, your experience is well, a chair should be comfortable. Mm-hmm. It should have arms or you know, and if mm. it doesn't have those expectations, then mm. your experience of it is going to change. Mm-hmm. So some of this is a real grounding in the conceptual work that you're leading into. When you're talking about a chair with moss, it's just making me think of the work that you did with Annie Evelyn. Yes. Like collaborating some of the chairs that you all did back and forth. And I don't know if there was more than one or... I think there was just one, but yeah, Annie's a... You made the tiles and she made the chair. That just made me think of that project. Well, Annie and I share a lot of the same beliefs, I think, and that we are trying to create experiences for people and we're often using furniture to, to do that. And I'm going to jump in real quick and interject. Annie Evelyn is a conceptual furniture maker. She does all sorts mm. of really amazing, fantastic furniture work. And it seems like the chair is kind of one of the central elements of her work. Well, and, and the other thing too, the wonderful thing about radio is you have to use your imagination. So uh, paint us a picture of this piece. So the chair is pretty typical dining room chair style of four legs and sort of a two slat back. 
that you could easily push under a table and lift up and maneuver around. And it's a hardwood frame. Um, I think we were, she used a Pele. And the thing with Annie's chair work is that she uses the seat as an opportunity to, to, to have that tactile experience. Mm -hmm. And so, so she has um, invented this upholstery technique where she's using tiles and each of those tiles moves independent of the other. And so when you are to press down on it with your tush or a hand or whatever, you have this sort of smoosh effect and um, the compression of each of these individual tiles happening on their own. I think I interacted with this chair. I think I was in a show with you, and I. Oh, cool! Yeah, I. Were you? Was that chair in a show at Sika? It was. Yes. Yeah. Oh, cool. I think. Oh gosh. Or maybe it was one of her other ones. Maybe you know? it was one of the other ones. So it was weird because I mean, when I went and I saw it was getting unpacked and everything, I went and smushed it, and and I don't know if it's the same chair, but it was. It's wild. <laughs> Did you sit it? Did you sit no, it? No, no, no. It was it was up on a pedestal already, but I didn't get a chance to sit see. That's it, a, but... see. That's the interesting thing. It seems like that should have been an interactive piece. Right. People should have been allowed to sit on that and experience sitting on that seat. Because the key thing about that is that it messes with your expectations and preconceptions mm -hmm. about what it should be. It look from the outside looking in, it looks like all hard facets. It looks every like everything's secure and stable and that that chair is going to support mm -hmm. you and that it might even hurt to sit yeah. on because like of the shape of the tile. Like it's going to be a countertop or it's going to be set tile. It shatters your expectation when you sit on it and I think what gets Annie going is seeing the reaction of people when when they with that moment of uh, sort of joy and excitement releases from them when mm -hmm. they realize what something is happening to them that they weren't expecting. And that, that's, that's a key sort of, uh, thing that Annie and I share, uh, in, in the things that we make is that we are in, looking to incite a reaction of joy, um, and a reaction of something for me, it's, it's just something positive, mm -hmm. something, um, that has levity and yeah, so it, a release. It kind of depends yeah. on your pieces that you're doing. Because joy for some pieces, realization for other pieces. I mean, that leads me to think about these big chains that you're doing out of police barriers. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But you're using these pieces for further exploration into, I mean, and it's away from joy. It's into realization and exploring the real the the world and yeah awareness the real world yeah yeah where did where did you where did you get those police barriers i, I mean i know that the philadelphia police department is probably but you know <laughs> you can't just go into their chain link cordoned off yard and no, take them <laughs> no so when i was doing that residency at the center for art and wood last summer um that was right in downtown philly and that was directly after I had left my position at Penland School of Craft as the Wood Studio Coordinator um, to pursue residencies and to pursue my studio practice full time. And the two residencies that were sort of jumping off from that were it was the Center for Art and Wood and then one in San Diego uh, at San Diego State University. Anyways, environmentally, it was a big shift for me. I was living in small mountain <laughs> right. town, Blue Ridge Mountains, you know, lots of green space, lots of trees, small community, a lot of trust in that community. 
Penland is very different yes. from the city. <laughs> Penland is very different from the city, and I know this, but still that 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 stark shift from you know the rural mountains to an urban environment it was very stimulating to me on like a daily basis. It was a pretty charged shift in experience. And I guess in taking in all of that, I was looking a lot at the way that chains are used in the city to protect and contain Mm -hmm. and direct people in certain ways. And they were just everywhere. It was like, I was going, I moved from a place where I didn't have to lock my car you know, I left my keys in my car yeah. most of the time to the city where I had a whole new set, a whole new set of keys that were weighing me down and, you know, locking every door behind me. So anyways, this is how most people live in the world. But for me, I was like thinking a lot about that. And also in Philadelphia, yeah, there's all these police barriers, like littering the streets mm-hmm. because people, the you know, police force would forget that they were cordoning off this road or doing that and, and they're wood. And so they were rotting yeah. and no longer structural. And so essentially what a police barrier is, is a sawhorse. Yeah. Um, yeah. That like directs people or blocks off certain areas and they're painted. Each city has their own and they're painted a certain way in New York. They're all blue. And in Philadelphia, they're like this bright yellow mm-hmm. um, and a little bit of blue. And they say, police line police limit line on them and as a person who is taking in the environment around me and I'm trying to respond to that environment this was the material that kept popping up I started collecting the discarded police barriers and then eventually went to just out of curiosity how do you do they they were just throwing them out and you would pull them out of the dumpster behind the the police station i'm just curious about the process of collecting them yeah actually stole them in the middle of the night no (laughs) yes it it did cross my mind i mean it did cross my mind but some of them were like by a dump some would be by a dump and i was like i'm gonna take this it's meant to be thrown out and Others, there was a whole a whole pile of them outside of a, a a district police station, and I went into the station and just sort of told them like what I wanted to do, um, and that I wanted to take these away and use them in an art project. And I got lucky, and there was somebody there on that day that like was like, okay, just do it, put them in the van and go. And so <laughs> I was able to like walk away with quite a few, which I needed to, to create the effect of this longer project. You didn't, you didn't stop to try and explain to them the greater meaning of the piece and what you were trying to accomplish. <laughs> what I really want to do is I want to make a statement with these police barriers mm-hmm. where I'm going to cut them up into links and it's going to mimic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to render what you do powerless. No, I'm going to lock you up. No, I'm just going <laughs> to... Just get them out of our sight now. I mean, they're really charged um, material. And so I had to kind of sit with them and imagine and feel what this found material meant in the context of me using it as an art material, yeah. in the context of it being a discarded thing in Philadelphia. And what do people feel when, when they encounter this? So you said sit with it. So when you when you were picking these up, did you know that you were going to make these into long chains or was that something that came with the sitting and thinking about? I pulled, I pulled it into the studio without knowing that it would become a chain. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was like, this is a charged material that has something in it that I want to pull out. And I didn't know 
what that would look like. It was wood. To, it was a material I could build with, yeah. and it could become anything. But I knew that whatever it did. It kind of spoke to you because it was wood, or because it was a police barrier, or or both. Both of those things, yeah. Because yeah, my brain's like, no, I need material to work with. Now explain what you mean by charge, because that could mean a, a lot of different things. Yeah, we're all in this this frame of mind right now where we've all been exposed to uh, videos of mm-hmm. countless African Americans being violently persecuted because of their race, because of a police force that has too much mm-hmm. power, because of a government that ignores both of these things. The police body... You know, the police body has a very racist history. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so most of the time, you know, white people encounter the police body as a protective organization. Or maybe they're getting a traffic citation or it's like very... Well, it's created to protect capitalism. Right. Yeah. And I just feel like last year, for me, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what... It is that the police body has is doing and offering, and do I agree with it? I feel like it, it's extremely unfair. And as an artist, you know, I'm probably not doing the best I, job explaining what it means that they're charged, but it's something that I feel, and it's something that I know that I can use that material to communicate. Mm-hmm. And so in a lot of ways, it's knowing that this material has a history this this police barrier has a history embedded in it mm-hmm. that um, a history of control, a history of of, of of like domination, of mostly taking power from people. And I think that the turning it into a chain kind of is a necessary act of repossessing that power, taking something that is this you know strong, stable object that you know, controls the human body, turning it into a chain, into something more fluid, something less functional, Mm -hmm. was my way of saying, you know, this, this is a charged material and this is what I have to communicate about it. It's so wild with each one of those pieces. I mean, each one of those barriers, individual barriers has its own story. Well, it's likely that prisoners, uh, people incarcerated were painting those as well. Oh, yeah. And I was even thinking yeah, like full circle, <laughs> what roads they blocked and what yeah. protests that they steered in a different direction or who was thrown against them or, you know, each yeah. each individual yeah. one of those right. pieces. And you'll never be able to find all of that out. But that charges it even further. And you actually left the original markings on the pieces, the original stripes and can you actually see any of the lettering to know that it was a police barrier? I'm just curious. I, I think so, yeah. I did want that to be evident. Um, and the only thing that I did to them was take them in and wash them. Like, I I cut them into smaller parts and, and scrubbed them mm-hmm. so that the grime and stuff was... So, so that that lettering could, could be more evident, yeah. Although, I mean, I think, that, interestingly enough, that brings up a whole other topic of, you know our role as artists to, to to challenge the world in terms of making political art. I mean, really, we just throw our ideas out there and we allow the viewer to interpret it. And that's mm-hmm. the wonderful thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I think when you overplay your hand and go, this is what this is, this is how you need to see it, I 
think that you you sort of shortchanged the, the the viewer in terms of their expectations of the piece and how they want to view it in their own experience. I think what I'm trying to say is you don't need to hit somebody over the head with a hammer of the meaning of a piece. They're they're either going to get your intention or they're not going to get their intention, and both are good. You know what they're able to get from the piece has equal meaning for them, and they can go well you know, a range of choices in terms of how to view your work. I just, I, I just don't know whether our role as artists is to hit somebody over the head with meaning and say, this is what this is. Right. I mean, I always try and steer away from being too didactic and being too much, having my art function too much as an infographic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not about that for me. I, but I think what you're saying about responding to the material and trying to pull out of it something that allows it to live under a new light is really important. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I mean, bringing up another one of our great interviews with Adrian Siegel, who works so much with data, Mm. she really, she doesn't really want to make a political statement about anything. She's going to go, this sculpture Mm -hmm. models a forest fire in Northern California. Right. I'm not going to make any further statement about it at all, but this is an image of this data. And it means X to me, but you interpret it. Do with it what you will. Yeah. Do with it what you will. Exactly. I love that you take charged material like that and reinterpret it, give it a new, I guess, a new breath of life. What are some other projects of yours where you've done something like that? Are the totems that you talked about, are, are, are you doing that type of thing with material for the totems? Or, I don't know, you, you had mentioned those earlier in our conversation, and maybe, maybe we can kind of back up a little bit and talk about those. They seem like a, a pretty important part of your, um, your artistic expression. And, and again, please describe them as we go along. Okay. When you work with found objects or found materials, you can always weave your way back to its origin story. And how you do that in relation to, and how I do that in relation to who I am as a person and and my personal histories has significance. And a lot of my work, I can, I can sort of braid those things together and tell you something about its history and my history and how, how we got to this new um, outcome, which is the work. Uh, living out in the world. It could be as simple as I found these old sticks at a lumber yard and the lumber yard's history. I think that origin stories are increasingly um, essential to, to how artists present their work. Ethically, morally, there's a lot there. If you're, you know, and woodworkers have dealt with this for, for ages now, um, you know, that for a time it was really in vogue to use exotic woods and to say that we're not creating that much of an environmental um, impact. We're just furniture makers making small pieces, you know, but the fact of the matter is, is that is now embedded in in the history of that object and the history of that piece of furniture. Um, Where did that wood come from? Mm -hmm. So, so I'll sort of segue into like using found materials also because they're available and they, in most cases, don't cost me anything. Yeah. And that's something I'm 
not ashamed to say I like it when I don't have to pay for material. I mean, it's nothing to be ashamed about. (laughs) I think it's intelligent reuse. (laughs) Um, Well, and I I think it's also an avenue for, I mean, as we talked about before, it's an avenue for inspiration, but it's also, uh, it's also thinking creatively. I I mean, don't let, uh, don't let, don't let the cost of an idea stop you from, from making something. It's like, it's it's just to me it's just another creative avenue agreed yeah uh it's a it's a way to to think creatively when it's in your hands and to say just because this has a little dirt on it or just because it's like cracked down the middle doesn't isn't going to stop the idea from coming to fruition and in fact it may direct the idea into itself and so part of what the crusaders do the the toad on the wood like wood sculptures that um, are totemic in nature. I I call them crusaders, um, and they are a collection of sort of standalone wood sculptures. So imagine a piece of wood. Say we'll we'll look at a two by four. Take a two by four. Maybe I cut that up into a length that the two by four can stand upright with its own sense of balance. So that's the scale we're talking about. Maybe no taller than eighteen. To 20 inches or so and what I do with these sort of sticks of wood um, is I use them as as a sketching tool so I use the I use them in conjunction with the bandsaw and I will cut them into a variety of geometric shapes that sort of give it you know, there's negative spaces involved, there's interesting contours happening, and it's all utilizing the sort of technique of making a cabriolet leg. So as you flip the piece of wood and make incisions with the bandsaw, you're able to release material in ways that are are pretty quick. So it's, it's a subtractive process. Um, it's all removal of material from this original block mm-hmm. of wood. And it's all using the bandsaw. And what it is for me is sketching. So it's instead of a pencil and paper, it's this chunk of wood and a bandsaw blade. And there is no plan. um, And it's all done in response to whatever music I'm listening to, whatever. (laughs) Oh, that's great. um, Whatever sort of that's a big part of what i do too the music yeah yeah i i have to be listening to to like upbeat fun sort of electronic dance music when i'm when i'm cutting these things when you mentioned dayton ohio Mm. i was just like ah brainiac it's one of my favorite bands in the world and they're from dayton oh wow and i just saw that they put out a uh documentary uh earlier this year about Brainiac and they're crazy industrial punk from like the mid nineties. And they're, they were cut short before they, with tragedy and it was kind of sad, but man, they put out some cool albums. I love that. Um, that's, you know, that, that, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, that, that's cool that that is an important element of what you do. I mean, getting plugged into tunes. I mean, Eric and I, you know, Eric's way into bluegrass. I'm into, to heavy metal and hard rock and conversely a lot of jazz mm, mm. and you know that that stuff makes us happy yeah so and and actually in a in you know one of the most important one of the most difficult things i've i've had to learn as a musician 
versus as a, a, in my studio practice is mm. how to improvise. And, you know, I, bluegrass is sort of an oversimplification, not to get into any ethnomusicology, but I'm into <laughs> all kinds of music. I love jazz. I grew up listening to jazz and, and improvising, I think, is an important part of, of being able to go into your studio and have fun. I mean, yes, as we talked before, wood is it's largely a reductive material. Uh, once you cut it and it's too short or too yeah, long, yeah. it's a, but I mean, knowing how to improvise is a really important thing. And I think that that's music brings that home like no other thing. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought up improvisation. Is that what you're doing on some of these oh, totems? Because yeah. it seems like you're improvising on the bandsaw. Absolutely. It's, it's improv. And it's uh, what I love about improv, and I've only ever had a few experiences doing it in person, you know? Oh, like performance improv. Yeah, I took a class once, and I, I want to get into it more. The philosophy there is if someone presents you with, an, with a scenario, you have to agree to it and, and then add to it. So it's yes yeah. and. Do you want to take this path over here? Yeah, I do. And then let's go up that other hill and let's see what's up there. Yeah. And the next person says, yeah. And let's go look at those, you know, what, and so it continues on. It's so wild to watch it. I, I had a few chances, actually a bunch. I used to go see this group in, in Asheville yeah. at a little at a little pizza place there. And it was the best time watching these five or six people interact with the audience and themselves and just... It was like I laughed harder and thought mm -hmm. more in those in those couple of hours than I did any other time. It was it was so wonderful and challenging and yeah. and, and opening to actually what just what just struck me wouldn't a, wouldn't a wood improv class a sculpture improv class where basically you had like <laughs> a handful of two by fours and a and a bandsaw like, and you cut you cut a shape and you hand it to somebody and the war and the, it's like yes and. Yes, and I'm going yeah. to do something with that. In the course of 15 minutes, you create an object mm. totally improvised. Like exquisite corpse totems or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, ex exactly. I mean, uh, I mean, I know some of the places like Emma Lake where people go and do that kind of stuff in a much more mm. organized fashion. But as a stage mm. performance or as just a or just as a workshop in terms of just freeing yourself i think uh let's do this yes eric <laughs> let's let's yeah let's do an imp wood improvisation 101 what a cool you know idea. just i mean yeah. for for yeah. me it's like what greater gift can you give yourself than to to feel free and and to walk into unknown territory and feel welcome to explore with within that new landscape i mean this is the definition of the word wanderlust right like people who and i think artists have this intrinsic intrinsically we're interested in exploring we're interested in reaching new territory Curiosity. and breaking boundaries and on a some small scale creating the crusader which you know the word crusade uh defined just sort of means you're leading a charge or you're sort of energetically moving um, forward with some sort of philosophical or social or political issue leading the way. And for me, that issue is like exploration and war, mm -hmm. like to, to be loose, to be open to the unknown, to be open to the unknown is in essence 
the muscle that I'm trying to work when I'm drawing on the bandsaw. Well, cool. Um, so as, as moving along in terms of talking about that, I'd love to talk about your broom projects because they, they really hit home for me. I think th there was a piece in American Craft, right, about your brooms? There was, yeah. I did a piece about that same time where I was just riffing on garden tools. I saw that work, yeah. Love it. And the, and the subtext to that piece was, and this actually came to me before I made the pieces, was, you know, what is the metaphor of these common objects? And so my piece was called, there was a series of garden tools, and it was called You Dig, and it was called Useless Objects with Which mm. to Dig Deeper, because <laughs> the notion was you can't dig anything with them. And Rob has played along the same lines with his fly swatter pieces, these really, you know, fun sculptural things that could actually swat a fly, although mine, and then you with these brooms. Right. The, but the notion of these common objects and sort of reimagining them into something else. Well, why do you think that is? I mean, it's all of these things have something in common. They are implements to solve some of the banalities of our daily life. Yeah, yeah. And we've used them a thousand times and without even thinking about it. Then, you know, you're sort of stuck in the doldrums of, of these daily life chores. And all of a sudden, some, one day something changes. One day you see a gesture in the fly swatter or you see, you know, a moment in the shovel that, that keys you into some sentient, uh, sort, of, I, sentient sort of presence in, in, this, in this otherwise static tool. So the angle that I came from it was to take something mundane mm -hmm. and utilitarian and, and, and just kind of spin it on its head. And I, I was looking for something, it was an, it was part of an assignment for me really in school. And it was a, it was a production item mm -hmm. that we had to make in my woodworking program that both Eric and I went through at Haywood community college, um, at different times, 15 years apart. And I was just looking around like, what? I don't want to make cutting boards, salt and pepper shakers. That's all so boring. And I ran into Andy Buck's toilet plungers. Mm. And and if you haven't seen his toilet plungers, <laughs> they're, the, they're, they're some of the coolest sculptures. They remind me a lot of what Eric and, and you and I mm -hmm. ended up doing. Yeah. Um, just that, that mentality of it. And so then I just started making i actually made the whole thing i did the the swatter head and the the handle and this you know all of it and it was it was really fun and i continue to do them i'll do a batch every couple of years it seems to provide agency to the material or the object in a way you're passing on that privilege of of expression onto something that otherwise just has just gets to sit there and and have others enact their own sense of action on it. Yeah, I mean, because brooms and fly swatters and shovels are pretty boring, but to yeah, to give to inject a little life into them, it's fun. I mean, the, these brooms are wild shapes. Explain like how you decided on a broom and well, where you came up with the the shapes and <laughs> oh and by the way you started a whole movement too i mean adam manley was telling me that everybody out at san diego state oh. is making brooms now and and you started the whole I, broom movement <laughs> i cannot take any credit for that and in fact i i i think you might be thinking of a really good friend of mine um uh furniture maker aspen golan 
who is doing uh, this. Uh, she did, oh, did a, she? a brush tutorial in which she's created a oh. very nice sequence um, of of directions to to create like a small like little brushes, and then you you can do anything with the handle, and that's the beauty of it. Like you you can put these two things in anybody's hands, and they're going to come up with something different. I think some of these makers, though Aspen and Teresa all day yes. were inspired by seeing your brooms. Oh, that's what we're getting. Well, at. and um, I mean, I guess my first uh, my first uh, experience was was the the American Craft article. So yeah, I um, well, so so you're being modest. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that the collective conscious is definitely looking at brooms and brushes in a way that it hasn't in in, a, mm -hmm. in maybe ever. I think that people are into them right now. I think that there's something that is fashionable about the brush as an object and the the broom as a, as a household tool because people are so particular and so interested in curating every moment in their life. You know, it goes back to the origin stories like a lot of especially artists and designers are not going to just buy the cheapest broom at you know the supermarket but they might investigate that further and say i would like this handmade broom from you know berea kentucky or whatever so there's a there's yeah. a sort of there's choices there that people are making with more care what do you think happens to the meaning of these objects when we've essentially turned them into non-functional items and Rob, I'll put your fly swatters in that category, just because even though they could swat a fly, I don't think anybody ever will oh, no. swat a fly the, with them. The, the comment I get from everybody is like, "Oh, they're so cute, and there's it's art. I'm 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 just gonna hang it on the wall and never use it." And I'm like, use "No, it. no, no! You're you're supposed to chase flies around the room and get aggravated." And well, uh, okay, so maybe <laughs> we can't lump them, but I I think my sho my shovels and your brooms would be very hard to ever function. So I think the meaning of the object changes somehow. And what's your thought on that? Well, so okay, yeah, you're not going to take any of these brooms that I made and and sweep a floor effectively with them. But what if you sort of snuck your body in there somehow and you know matched the contours of some of the arcs and angles in these brooms and did move through space? I think that what it's doing is it does take, you know, it, it activates the imagination and provides this sort of moment where this otherwise very predictable task is flipped on its head and you're able to break out of the, the banality of it. And, and, and like for a lot of these things, it's, it's a ritual, you know, sweeping the floor is a ritual, clearing your space of pesky flies is, <laughs> an annoying <Yeah. laughs> ritual at best but it has to happen right, yeah, um, yeah. and you know shoveling and such um you're also moving through space with these objects right and so by manipulating their form you're activating space in a sculptural sense and in a way that activates more senses within the human mind and body and and actually if i could if i could sort of mm -hmm. wrap up this whole discussion it comes back to yes, play it's much. all about play i mean it's all about using these objects to play with and spurring further thought but you know they're no longer functional domestic mm -hmm. items mm -hmm. they are objects with mm -hmm. which to play yeah, well, right and thank you for bringing that full circle because at the end of the day it 
I think more people could invite that into their life at no cost, at no harm to anyone and feel better. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that, that's a really great note to end on Ellie. More better, you know, more better. I mean, Always end on more, more better. More, <laughs> more better. I mean, and, and that's what life should be about, you know, learning, learning how to play mm. and learning how to coexist with each other and making this world a happier place. And you're, you're making a lot of people smile and doing that. Thank you. Oh. So thank you for being on Why Make, Ellie. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thanks a lot, Ellie. We enjoyed having you on Why Make and Why Make. Why Make. Why Make. <laughs> you can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at why make pod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.